Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we normally read old fanfiction, but occasionally, due to circumstances, some of us discuss modern animation instead. This episode is about the French animated feature, I Lost My Body. Incidentally, one of the first things Dom says is that it was nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Academy Awards and lost out to Toy Story 4. I have not seen I Lost My Body, so I can't be angry at that. But I will die angry that the Triplets of Belleville lost Best Song to The Return of the King in 2003. This episode was actually recorded some time ago at about the same time as our previous Bluey and Midnight Gospel animation talk episodes. So forgive any loss of audio quality. It's from when we were younger and less experienced and had worse equipment. Fun fact, this episode is 15 minutes longer than the movie they're discussing. Enjoy. Today we're going to talk about the movie I Lost My Body, or in French, uh, J'ai perdu mon corps. I'm glad you were the one who had to say that. <laughs> I am not. My French accent is terrible. <laughs> My French accent is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie that came out in 2019 to much applause it won the international critics week in uh won the nespresso grand prize which i think is a Cannes film festival thing first animated film to do that really well, that's impressive yeah. also nominated for an american academy award for best animated feature lost out to uh, toy story 4 of course but huh. uh C'est la vie. C'est la vie. <laughs> also won an Annie Award for Best Animated Feature Independent, Outstanding Achievement for Music in an Animated Feature Production, and Outstanding Achievements for Writing in an Animated Feature Production. Very good accolades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk about what the movie's about? Yeah. You know, so the funny part, I want to start with this, is I started watching this, you know, the first five minutes before and my whole like I have this kind of adversity to to body horror and the way the film starts out I feel like it's going to be kind of more like a horror flick because a hand (laughs) wakes up basically a hand wakes up inside a fridge with a jar of eyeballs and some organs and in jars and it's and then it's very dark and you're just like oh my god what's happening um but really where the film goes is the hand pretty much acting like a person with like emotions and the ability to see and hear their surroundings, though not speak, is trying to find their way back to their the, the body they belong to. And in the meantime, more than half the movie is flashbacks to the childhood of the hand's owner. And then it sort of slowly builds up to the more recent events and the circumstances surrounding the loss of the hand. I forgot, but the first, like the first first shot of the movie is actually a young person covered in blood with a severed hand next to them, and then the hand wakes up in the fridge. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So when the credits are kind of coming in, there's a couple like flashes, and ones to a buzzing fly. The fly becomes a, a motif in the movie, and then yeah, they finally <laughs> like flash to he's got a he's got a a, a black eye too. So I was like, and, and his hand ends up in this weird fridge. And I was just like, what? Like, we, we actually never had a complete picture of why his hand ended up in a weird fridge with it. Literally, like, there's like a bucket thing. Like, a, you know the thing they there's store, a jar like, like, toys of eyeballs. In? Yeah, it's like free float. They're just like, there's not even a fluid, you know. It's if they were just like 
toys you would get from like those jars you reach into at the counter, you know, or like candy. You Looks know. like a Halloween prop. Yes, totally. And it's like a, a normal looking fridge too. And there's only a couple other organs and jars there. So you're just like, what happened here? But, uh, <laughs> you know, that that's never really, we never really understand why, why that was the case. And if you would describe just that, it would sound like a cheap B-movie horror plot, but how, how would you describe it looks, like, first impression with the animation style? The animation style, first impression, I was like, oh, well, this looks like vectoring, but also, like, hand animation. So that's right. why I initially looked it up. I was like, there's no way vectoring could be this good. Um, but the impression wasn't a uh, B-movie horror thing. It was oh, no, kind of like a... Yeah. Yeah, aesthetically. Yeah, no. I mean, you very quickly kind of get into this, what feels like a very like suspenseful narrative around this hand trying to escape the fridge. And it seems, I don't know, almost like a... It's, um, the flashbacks are... The early flashbacks are in black and white. And the first scene is in very muted colors because it's at night and it's dark in the room. So you kind of get this mm -hmm. almost, I don't know, like noir suspense feel. <laughs> yeah. So the kind of flashbacks we're getting is stuff like the hand experience, like a, as a baby touching stuff or as a child on the beach, their hand coming out of the sand and several just like emotional evocative images and sequences. Yeah. And it's like not, you know... What I noticed first with the movie is it's like hands are always at the forefront of your notice and attention in a given scene because we started with the focus being on a hand. So every action mm -hmm. that a hand does, regardless of whether it was this hand in the past before it was separated or someone else's hands, is very intentional and describes a lot of emotion. But what I like is that we start with like, yeah, like the hand going through the sand as a, you know, when he was a child. But then we get, you know, more complicated things like him learning to play the piano and his mother and father mm -hmm. talking about like his dad's like, oh, he's going to be an astronaut. His mom's like, he's, you know, he's going to be a pianist. And he's like, I'm going to be both. <laughs> and I actually think yeah. the first thing was his dad trying to teach him how to catch a fly. He asks his dad how to catch a fly and his dad tells him you have to uh, aim for where it's going to be, not, not where, where it is. Yeah. And also to come at it from the side, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so throughout the movie, we get these um, twin narratives going through. With the main one being the hand's journey through the city. And the other one is the um, childhood and adolescence and young adulthood of a kid named Naufel from Morocco. Oh, he's from Morocco. Okay. I didn't As catch a... that. <laughs> I, I paused for a moment to check something. But uh, as a it turns out as a kid, uh, Naufel's parents died in a car crash and they get sent off to relatives that lived in Paris. When he, uh, this scene where they got to Paris, the uncle checked the, the tag that was around the kid's neck and it said, um, like, inbound flight to Paris, outbound from Rabat, which is in Morocco. Oh, because I actually looked up the, I was wondering where his name came from. So I looked up the origin of the name and it, the, you know, it's, it's Arabic and Muslim, but like there was one country in particular that the name had the most presence in. It wasn't Morocco. It was, hmm. 
Oh man, I can't remember now. A country that starts with an A. Oh well. Anyway, I just didn't. I I didn't <laughs> catch that little bit. And mostly throughout the uh, movie, I was more interested in following um, Nalfell's story, the childhood and adolescence, and the sort of slow, evocative things that that happened. Yeah, well, because the story of the hand is just kind of like, um, I don't know, it's almost like Toy Story when the toys are trying to return home. <laughs> I, I, I will probably only think that because you brought up Toy Story recently, but it's like, it was that action I thing mean, where like everything is You're like, right, though. But I think part of the reason I think that is when I thought this, it was the cool thing about the journey of something small is that every detail of the world is observed. Like, for instance, mm -hmm. it's trying to go down an escalator, and it's just a hand, so it's like the size of a, a small rodent, you know? And like, a cigarette butt comes up the escalator, and it, like, focuses on that, has to step over it. And getting down the escalator is its whole, like, <laughs> you know, very difficult journey. And I, I love that journeying the world is something so much smaller than a human makes things that we navigate easily seem so impossible. Like, an escalator is a mountain, you know? Yeah. The other Toy Story aspect was that the hand was actively trying to avoid human attention in a similar way. <laughs> yes, very. I mean, there's there's several comic moments, such as, like, getting a soup can. Because it's the hand is severed just, you know, just above the wrist. So mm -hmm. there's, like, a little bit of a, you know, like, above the wrist, there's a kind of a little bit of a stump. And it gets a soup can trapped on top of it, or a ravioli can. And it's, like, sort of using it as a disguise. And there's one point so hermit crabs around. <laughs> yeah, like it does look like a hermit crab and like a child sees it out the window. And when I first started watching the movie, I was like, oh, this is creepy. But when the child sees the hand crawling around, it seems very in a soup can. It seems silly and fantastical. Yeah, it's interesting because they don't shy away from blood, but they do like in the top cross section of the wrist, for example, they don't show like all the bones and ligaments. They just kind of put that as one tone. Yeah. So they have this weird like sense of danger and whimsy at the same time totally and i think this could have gone to a place like i was definitely like i said not sure if i wanted to watch this movie the first time but i'm glad that through this podcast it made me watch it because it's not gross or horrifying it's actually kind of sweet in a in a way and it's very much yeah. an emotional journey um, yeah and of course, one thing that's really important is that throughout this whole story, it's about the character and how the hand is an extension of the character. And the one thing I've always, you know, thought of in my long years of literary analysis is that hands represent agency. And there's yeah. a strong theme of fate, the main character talking, you know, in these past scenes about what fate is and if you can change your fate. So I loved that the separated hand and agency and fate were all intertwined themes of the story, as well as the theme of loss, because the character lost their parents at a young age, and we get that fairly early on. Yeah, uh, along with the title, I, uh, where it's from the hand's point of view, I have lost my body. Right. But, and I think we'll get here, but as you get toward the end, it's actually more about the character reconciling the fact that they've lost their hand and also lost other things. Mm -hmm. So, I want to talk about the hand story first because I don't have too much to say about it. We'll just go through that quickly. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, the hand like wakes up in the in the fridge, makes its way outside. Uh, 
almost gets pushed off the roof by a pigeon, which then it grabs by the neck, ends up accidentally killing. There's <laughs> and a lot then falling of falling into a yeah moments of peril for the hand trying to move through yeah. the world. And and that moment actually struck me a lot because it not only was a really dynamic scene, like the hands passed out unconscious because it basically behaves like a person, and mm-hmm. the pigeon pushes it off the roof, and all it can do is grab onto the pigeon's neck, and. It was one of the most powerful scenes because the pigeon's just swinging its neck, trying to get the hand off, freaking out. It even steps in its own nest and breaks its own eggs. And, yeah. and that's where I thought the movie was going to get, like, really, you know, powerfully depressing, which I don't think mm-hmm. it really did. Because that scene alone was like, oh, my God, because then the pigeon dies. But not because the hand wanted to kill a pigeon, because the hand was trying not to fall. Yeah. Um, that was an intense scene. But I think it sets the stage for the fact this is a movie about death in a lot of and loss. And then uh, after that falls in the trash, gets hermit crab ravioli time, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. goes down into the metro. I, I just love seeing those Paris metro signs by the way. They're they're always fun. Oh yeah, they're awesome. If you've never seen yeah. or like been to Paris or seen images of the Paris metro signs, just look it up. They're great. They're great. They're like monster and... world things. <laughs> it does feel like a cartoon or animation. Like you're going to enters a different world <laughs> completely so goes goes through the escalator and what ends up falling in the cracks down to the uh tracks of the metro yeah which well, it has this interesting scene with the with the rats oh man yeah i was trying to figure out at this point you know how much the hand was a character versus a vehicle you know i was like the mm-hmm. hand is clearly trying to get back to its body and has a motivation. But like, does it have feelings? And at this point, it was like very clear that it did. The hand's like it showed uh, showed caution. Yes, it's. Well, do you want to describe it? So, the hand is covered in ravioli juice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe the technical term is sauce. Don't quote me. And there's like a rat there that's like because the hand is small. The rat's about comparable size. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure they changed the sound, too. This movie has great sound design, by the way. Yes, it does. They changed the sound of the rat to sound like a bigger creature. Ends up Ended up reminding me of, like, a, a dog where it was sniffing and licking. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And it sniffed and, lift, sniffed and uh, licked the finger. And then eventually, because it's a wild rat, it gets more bold and starts attacking. Well, they didn't necessarily attack. They bit the finger. And I think it was more like, you know, what are you kind of thing? Like, are you food? And, you know, it bit the finger and then the hand like skitters back and then the rats are joined. The rat is joined by friends who are like, oh, yeah, no, we're not going to get along. (laughs) Or like, no, no, this is food. Yeah, Yeah. we got this. Yeah, we're going to. Yeah, we're going to eat this, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Which led to a very, very tense fight scene. Mm -hmm. Considering what happened not that long ago with the. with the pigeon and how close they kept on showing the hand getting to like the rails. I kept on expecting something more uh, drastic to happen. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Well, like they kept on showing the hand getting closer to the rails every time it happened, it, it like walked past it. And I thought that that was like a rule of three things. Is it going to show it like in like the third time? Like something was going to get crushed by the train, or oh, sure. something more gory was going to happen. Yeah, nothing really 
gory other than losing a hand happens. Than the hand itself. Yeah. The only thing is early on. Um, yeah, where like they, you know, you've got a separated hand, and then but the only other gory oh. thing was the one of the eyeballs rolls out of the jar, and gets stepped on in the first scene, and I was like, yeah. Ew. I'm trying very hard to actively erase that from my mind, but yeah, totally. No, I mean, me too, and and that's actually the point at which I stopped watching the movie the first time because I thought the whole thing was going to be like that. That's actually not. It's kind of yeah. the opposite. It was interesting. It was like it threatened you with that tone almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, for me, I feel weird about it because, you know, with this whole culture we have of, you know, it's it's on Netflix, right? You kind of decide if you you want to see something within the first five or ten minutes, and if something really turns you off that way, you're not going to want to watch it. Um, mm-hmm. But I know that for a lot of viewers that might have created more intrigue. So it was just weird to me that the tone shifted so much after the first scene. And I know that it was deliberate because I believe everything in this movie was deliberate. I'm just not quite sure. Um, Maybe it was focused on the realities of death and the body, because that is something this movie is focused on. I was trying to talk to other people about this movie, and I think, like, like they ask me what happened, I'm like, you know, not not much happens, but it's just a lot of things to evoke a feeling from you. I think, yeah, to make you relate and then feel and be empathetic to what is ha- going on in that moment. I think a lot of what happens, like, is not so much a plot point as is it is it is a a very archetypal narrative. Like hmm. this is a narrative I feel like I've seen done over and over again both the journey of the hand and the past events are, I mean, we'll get to what the past events are with the char- the main character whose hand it is, but they're all like very archetypal. And so I feel like mm-hmm. it's something that's easy to relate to no matter where you're coming from. So I'm going to kind of gloss over a lot of things that happen, but the hand ends up falling into a river, holding onto a tennis ball. The tennis ball gets picked up by a dog. The dog belongs to a blind person, and they go to a blind person's house. Coincidentally, very favorable for the hand that the owner does not <laughs> notice a severed hand attached to the tennis ball in the dog's mouth. Nor does anyone else yeah. they pass. That was the only point where I was like, hold on a second. <laughs> like The way they uh, revealed that information to the viewer was great, too, because it showed like the dog, like, like the, somebody calling the dog, the dog walking up, and then like a hand reaching out slowly, Petting the dog's head, and then you see the 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 cane in shot. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because every scene with the hand is done completely, you know, with the hand's focus in mind, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So, I do think those parts were done pretty well. Yeah, we then have the hand um, crawling around the blind person's apartment, spending some time, kind of nostalgically watching them play piano and listening i mean we know the hand can hear too as well as see who knows why but it's okay it's a metaphor <laughs> it's also interesting because like i when i was talking about this movie to somebody else and they're like oh the hand's going to go find their body right and it's like that's never really like explicitly stated you just have the well you just know that the movie is called i've lost my body then you see a hand moving and then your mind already like, it makes a lot of those connections for that story, yeah. whether they didn't have to state it 
or imply it, really. But I, I do think it's also implied in the fact that the first scenes are of the hand, and every other, like, then this other scenes are flashbacks. Especially the childhood mm-hmm. scenes are done in black and white to distinguish that they're flashbacks. And every other scene R- continues to feel like a flashback. So it feels like the hand is having flashbacks of their owner. And because every mm-hmm. flashback is focused on, like, something the hand did, whether that was playing music or woodworking or touching another person or, like, having their hand held, et cetera. Yeah, that would be the... It feels like the hand is thinking about the body. That'd be the uh, transition scenes between the two narratives, between the hand's narrative and uh, Nalfell's narrative. Mm-hmm. Like, the hand would see something, and then you'd flash back to Nalfell, like, handling a watch or something. Right, which are ultimately the same narrative. You know, they really are. Um, yeah. The hand flashes back to being a part of the body. And it's never specifically... I want to say it's not specifically focused on what the hand is doing to an extreme point. But the hand is always, like, a lead-in or a part of it. Yeah. And then what happened with the hand after that? I kind of... My brain jumps to the, to the end of that. Yeah, okay. So, the yeah, so... It's kind of... I mean, it was kind of a like, you have a lot of emotion for this hand in this, because mm-hmm. the hand is very expressive, and it makes you think about hands gesticulating, how they're also very expressive. Hands are very expressive parts of the body. They're also the most sensitive feeling parts of the body. So the hand acting as a character, like I mentioned before, rather than the vehicle, um, you know, is listening to music and enjoying it and recollecting childhood and enjoying music and the mother that they've lost. Um and then the um, the blind man reaches up for his water glass and he feels the hand and he's like, "What the fuck?" And he's and he senses because the hand reacts and then moves and he's like, "Oh my god, damn rats!" And yeah. so the hand has to run away in fear and jumps down onto the piano and briefly like touches the notes um, in a very scattered way. And there's this you know, <laughs> heightened sense of fear coming from the hand. You have points where the hand, like, shivers in fear or anticipation. But it's never something right. that, like, you feel like your own hand couldn't do. The motion is very natural for any hand. It's just very expressive for the hand as a character. The, so the hand runs into the grate. Uh, the dog is called to catch the rat, and the hand has to run away. And it's very tense. Like, that was, I think, the most tense moment of the hand narrative, you know, other than mm-hmm. maybe the pigeon moment. <laughs> that was the one I was most afraid for the hand. Yeah. Um, and after that, it's the abandoned building, right? And the graffiti person. Yes. Oh, yeah. That was the point where I was thinking about really what hands mean in terms of expression, because the only purpose I think that scene serves. Well, here, let's you, you go ahead and talk about it. So we find the hand in an abandoned building. This is towards the later of the narrative too, where like the two stories are get, getting closer and closer. The the hands in an abandoned building, and we see a masked person who's a uh, spray painting as they're walking along. Uh, the hand follows them, and the person ends up spray painting something on the side of the building, something like um, uh, "Je suis là, I am here," I think. And then after that, the hand recognizes a sight from um, Nalfell's past, its past, <laughs> which is a crane close to a building that's important to them. 
So then the hand grabs an umbrella and decides to jump off. Yeah, and one of the things the person is that what happened or just what I think an umbrella. <laughs> Um, cause there's this weird scene where it's like, I wasn't sure why they were establishing this person was about to graffiti. Cause they clearly had a mask, a mask shaped like a bird, like almost like a pigeon and a hood on. Mm. Um, it was, oh, that's right. that, it was, uh, that's it was they the were pigeon out to come back. Yeah. 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 The pigeon was coming back. I was like, this clearly they're out to bomb. Like, I don't know why they show the scene of them holding a spray paint count out to their side and just spray painting whatever they walk past. So that's not normal. You know, like for people who really <laughs> go out to bomb, like you're focused on the piece that you're doing. But I anyway, think was more, they spray painted uh, objects that were of value to the narrative. I think it was another expression of hands as agency, where it was just right. walking along, doing something. Yeah, because the only shot uh, we get of the the artists doing what they do is that they get to the top of the building, and they're dropping um, their paint roller down. Um, yeah, from the top of the building. Where it was the artist's intention, not necessarily to do something. Uh, dynamic but just to make a mark on where they are at the moment sure. which is why yeah. why i think they're spray painting as they're walking well that's cool yeah having presence but you know and i wanted to just like touch on that a little bit because that was a point where you know i was making a lot of connections around the expressions that hands can have and a lot of that is is being an artist so we've already talked about music in the story playing piano involves both hands you know, so mm-hmm. a lot of times as being an artist, this is also his right hand, and it seemed like the hand he used. It seemed like his dominant hand. So I was thinking about this a lot because I know people who have lost legs, and what a leg means to you is the ability to walk, and that's right. very significant. But what a hand means to you is the ability to, like, touch, feel, create, express, perform your craft, like, gesticulate, like, be close to a loved one. It's so much. And of course I mentioned agency before is how I've interpreted hands in media. But yeah, we get to the scene where the hand has to make a leap of faith. And this was the interesting part because I noticed there was an astronaut at his parents' funeral in like an astronaut, like a spacesuit. There was an astronaut and a uh, concert pianist, which were both yeah. versions of now fell older. Yeah. Um, which it was okay. just, they talked about it as their dreams, what they wanted to be. Why not both? So there's a couple times in the movie where you see an uh, illusionary astronaut and concert pianist standing side by side. Oh, man. I missed that because the only thing I picked up on was the astronaut because the astronaut at the funeral <laughs> really stopped me. I was like, no one's going to wear their spacesuit to a funeral. I was really confused. I thought the person standing next to them was a butler at first, but then I noticed that it looked like a fancier version of Nowfell, pretty much. Man, I didn't even pay attention because I was so distracted by <laughs> by someone in a space suit attending a funeral. You know, the other person looks like another person in a suit. Uh, okay, that's good. I'm, I'm glad that we've got that now. Yeah, that could have been clearer, I think. Yeah, but the astronaut was definitely clear. Like, at the funeral, yeah. <laughs> it's a brief shot of the funeral, but you notice the astronaut. Yeah. To a point where you've don't notice the other person and notice the Correct. thing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, when the umbrella scene comes, the hand has to make a leap of faith and the astronaut is kind of beckoning from the top of the bridge. They have to leap over the highway. Um, and I question at this point what the astronaut represented if it was fate because there had already been conversations about fate um, mm-hmm. from young adult Nafel in, in the past. 
and he actually spoke on, I mean, I guess we'll get to that further narrative, but he spoke on, like, whether you can get away from fate. Um, whether it was fate or whether it represented death, because it was also at the funeral. But with your That's a, take on yeah. the pianist being present and it being versions of him, what do you think? Yeah, that's a question, because it's like... Because uh, they ask when they're a kid, what do you want to be, an astronaut and or a pianist? And so that represented their idea of adulthood, right? What what you planned for yourself, what you thought was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And let's see, the hand at that moment is dealing with real life, trying to solve a problem. And at the same time, it sees what it thought it would it was supposed to do what what it was supposed to be and instead of being what it what it planned to be it has to take a leap of faith into the unknown and into fate itself right yeah and there was a couple of reasons why i thought it could also be representative of death because what happens is the hand um leaps off and gets caught in the highway traffic and like a lot of like very disastrous things happen it gets you know, the umbrella gets caught in the side of, you know, a moving truck and the hand gets spun around and bounced off of cars. And ways you think, like, maybe someone's hand would not survive intact. But no. the weird way that physics works in this is they do a very good job because the hand doesn't weigh as much as a person. So you have to mm-hmm. imagine, like, the hand is something that weighs as much as a hand separated from a body would while also acting like a human hand. So... It's kind of an unknown quantity. And I think they do a good job of representing that in the fact that, you know, it can be floated by the umbrella so easily and affected by gravity and physics. They do an incredible job. But anyway, what happens is the astronaut, when the hand is kind of finally out of the danger zone, is bouncing away from the highway, kind of like gives a wave goodbye. So in my mind, I was like, okay, that could be like fate being like, continue on your journey or that could be like death being like bye you avoided me this time you know or or let's uh combine the two and it's the death of childhood dreams sure um it could be a lot of things you know there's a lot of good symbols in this and they carry through and they're really consistent and i appreciated Mm -hmm. that and i think shortly after that we get the hand rejoining Nalfell or attempting to it finds Nalfell while while they're sleeping and then tries to sit itself on, on the I wish there's a better word for it severed stump and you know nothing happens it's a it's a disembodied hand it's not magic well it, it actually sort of feels like for a moment that they're drawing closer together like the stump and the hand there's yeah. a little bit of tension I mean, like, when I made my notes, I wrote this down. Like, I was writing as I was like, can they reunite? Should they? What is fate? Is what I literally wrote. And I wrote tension because there was a lot of tension. When the hand was sitting positioned correctly with the stump, it felt like maybe this is going to happen. But there was the uh, visual expectation over. of it of it happened that, you, that was kind of palpable that you could feel. And then right. now fell ends up... the most tense part to me. And then now fell ends up, like, tossing or moving and then... You kind of snap back with, oh, oh, of course not. No, it's gone. Yeah, I mean, but with this narrative, we are of the magic of the reanimated hand, so it's not unrealistic. However, knowing this is a French movie, I was sort of, like, set up for not, like, everything's happy at the end, you feel. Right. So do you want to talk about the uh, Nalfell story? Yeah. 
Let's do that. Um, it's interesting. Like we already talked about the early flashbacks being his childhood, and his parents died when he was young. And he, you know, I don't think what we've talked about yet is that when he was taken in, it seems to be by like maybe an uncle and a cousin, you know, some yeah. relatives, um, a, a boy who's older than him and an older man, and neither of them is very kind to him. No. And by the time we get to the present in Naufel's life, he's young. Like, I have to imagine he's, like, 20 or something. I imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. Can't can't be more than that. Right. And he's he's kind of past the high school age, but, you know, he's not done anything with his life yet. He's working as a pizza delivery guy. Um, Not well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He's young. You know, he's a kid. But he has mm-hmm. this kind of pivotal, life-changing moment when he tries to... Well, actually, he tries to deliver pizzas. And it's like the first scene we get of him as a young adult. He's delivering his pizzas. He's being chastised for being late to work. You know, like, things are not going well. And my thought at the time was, like, man, the hand wants to get so badly back to this life. But, like, what <laughs> actually is his life? Right. You know, it, it made... It actually impacted me. I was like... I don't know if this is going to continue so far into the, you know, the guy being like 40 years old, even though that's not what he looks like when he's in the initial scene. But like, yeah, if he's going to be in a better place by the time the hand wants to reunite with him or if this is his life right now, why does the hand want to be with him so badly? It's, you know, reuniting with the pole. But anyway, he, he has this whole thing where he's driving his scooter, delivering pizzas, and he's hit by a car. Um, that scene struck me a lot because the guy who hits him drives off, but you totally know he's going to drive off because the first thing he does is with his hand, he reaches out and adjusts the side view mirror of his car while he's asking Nalfell if he's okay. Um, and I'm not going to blabber too much. I feel like I've been talking too long, but the point (laughs) being is like, I knew that because the movie made me intentionally focus on what hands were doing. And if he's like, oh, hey, are you okay? But I'm also going to adjust my car a little bit right now. Yeah. You get the impression <laughs> that he doesn't care. And it's totally correct. That's interesting. I, I didn't, I noticed the action. I didn't register it like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, that was like, the whole movie just made me focus on what everyone's hands were doing all the time. <laughs> and they always meant something, you know? I did expect them to just drive off because I expected it to be a typical crappy job experience. I was pleasantly surprised when they stopped and asked if they're okay, waited for an answer, and then drove off. <laughs> yeah, but like, I still think they didn't care, you know. <laughs> I, I think they're doing it because they're supposed to. Yeah. yeah. Well, because Noah feels like, uh, yeah, oh, uh, and then the guy drives off, and he's like, wait, wait, you know, and the guy does not. Yeah. Noah is like, I'm, I'm fine. Wait, this is broken. <laughs> The guy doesn't stop for more than two seconds, you know? It, yeah. And, like, if you've been in an accident, you're like, uh, yeah. Like, that doesn't really mean you're okay. That means you've, like, basically just registered that something might have happened to you. Then after that, we follow Nafel to a, another failed pizza delivery attempt. Yeah. Oh, my God. This scene was so fun. It was fun, and... Very French cinema scene, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, so, 
Oh, go yeah, on. Go on. <laughs> no, excuse me. No, excuse you. No, you go first. No, no, no. Can, can you tell we're both Portlanders? Yeah. <laughs> Let us have this dance. You go. No, no, you go. No, you go. <laughs> and then you end up running into each other. Right. So now Fel tries to deliver a pizza into an apartment complex, calls the person on the intercom, and they have very awkward, like, kind of belligerent conversation. <laughs> yeah, he was super dumb. I mean, he's a 20-year-old boy, so, you know, I think, or whatever age he's young. I yeah. I forgive him for it, but he was just, I mean, he was just an accident, too. He's just like, hey, fast pizza. Lady's like, uh, <laughs> yo, you're late, what? and you didn't even say hello. And he's <laughs> like, no, I totally said hello. And she's like, no, you just said fast pizza. He's like, <laughs> I, I, I always, of course I said hello, I always say hello. <laughs> yeah, and, and she yeah. asks, are you going to say you're sorry? And he's just like, he doesn't say anything. And that's the point where I'm just like, oh my god. You can tell by the look on Nafel's face that they're kind of like, resolute to how terrible this is going to go right yeah it was yeah it was kind of sad scene because like i don't know this weird thing the thing i've recognized like i said this is a very archetypal movie even Mm -hmm. though the premise is very strange um when you get down to it it results in these certain archetypes i knew this was going to become a romantic thing from like the moment that they had this weird conflict because it felt like that it felt like this kind of like flirtatious french film thing where they were gonna be a little you know it almost felt like flirtation like she was like aren't you gonna apologize and then he's distant but then by the time he kind of admits that he's been in an accident and i predicted by the time he admitted he'd been in an accident she would be sympathetic and she was yeah i don't know how i knew that it's just there's (laughs) sort of trope or archetype that made this work right off the bat well, because what it was is it was a montage of Nalfel going throughout throughout his day, throughout his life, throughout his existence with nobody caring. And this is a very thing where it's like at the yeah. darkest moment, just someone looking at you and seeing you uh, yeah. is a surprise. Well, it was the first scene that we lingered on contact. It was actually the first time we'd seen someone really talk to him. Because... It was the first like extended dialogue scene. Yes, because his uncle and his cousin, I'm assuming that's who they are. I, sorry, I don't even know who his relatives are to him. But yeah, we're, we're, we're going to assume that from this point on, yeah. I mean, it makes the most sense. But yeah. anyway, yeah, he's, you know, they've both kind of, his uncle has literally said nothing to him in the whole film, as far as I can tell. <laughs> like, he's talked well, to him, but he hasn't talked back. Yeah, one he time he walked. one thing. He, he walks into the apartment. Nafel tries to walk past him silently, and the uncle goes, forgetting something. Then Nafel goes and drops off all the cash he has in his pockets in a can. Yeah, yeah. But then there's another scene later on where he's like, oh, I got a job in an apartment, I'm moving out. And Nafel <laughs> literally says nothing at all. Yeah. Um, just keep, and just then, keeps yeah. polishing their ship in a bottle. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, and then the older cousin, the only interaction at this point in the movie we've had from him is Nafel, like, accidentally missing the note that he was in there with a girl, mm-hmm. and then the girl leaving because she was walked in on with him, and him just, like, punching him in the shoulder and being like, you dumbass, or something like that. Like, yeah, it doesn't that... seem unaffectionate, but it's also just, like, very much nothing. Just very Chad the whole time, I think. Totally. 
that's yeah. real. <laughs> so, uh, during this d- delivery, Nalfell tries to open the door a couple times to the apartment after getting buzzed in, and it doesn't work out. So Nalfell ends up just sitting outside the apartment complex, uh, eating the pizza and dr- drinking a beer, and then they continue the conversation through the intercom from there. Yeah, well, she says she's going to come down. And it's funny because what he says is like, don't worry, you know, you're, never mind, your pizza's a wreck anyway. And that's when he confesses to the fact that he was in an accident. And she mm-hmm. says, oh my God, are you okay? Um, and the first thing he says is, he assumes she's talking about like, well, she says something like, is everything okay? Yeah, he is it okay? Like, yeah. It's the pizza. And he's like, no, the pizza's messed up. And she's like, no, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. And he's so, like, Vis- that was visually taken back, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard because, you know, for somebody who it's clear hasn't experienced a lot of love since they were a small child, you kind of wonder, you know, is he really just clinging to this first affection? It really seems like he is. Yeah, there's a lot about Nalfeld that talks about being an um, emotionally undeveloped person where they don't know how to feel love and how to express it or how to communicate with people in a non like I don't want to say predatory way but like aggressive way maybe yeah transactional it's interesting um we actually don't get a lot from any of the characters but I I think we do get really like we get the pieces of what I think is a short story really Mm -hmm. we have two short stories I think some movies you know try to develop characters a lot more but this gives us the pieces we need, like a short story would. Um, and actually, you know, it's also a reflection. It's yeah. a reflection from kind of his perspective, really. This uh, movie is actually based off a book called Happy Hand, that was written by Guillaume Laurent, who was who is a screenwriter, and has screenwritten for such movies as Amelie. Hmm. And this movie was co-written by Guillaume Laurent and Jeremy Claplin, who was the uh, the director. So the author was heavily involved in the production of this movie. Wow. I mean, that's great. I mean, it is a really well-written film, and it's really well done. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about it, how it's a short story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, the writing's great, just like an yeah. Amelie. Yeah, uh, Laurent said before that he never considered adapting this book to a movie because uh, he's only done live-action stuff before, and the, he didn't want it to turn into a weird B-movie horror-looking thing, and n- never considered animation for it. Hmm. Fascinating. So yeah, um, do you want to kind of run us through how the movie progresses a little bit? <laughs> After that, Nalfeld, uh demonstrates that they're not very experienced in human... Um, relationships and continues to uh, not respect boundaries, <laughs> but in yeah. a, in a ver- very very uh, romance movie sort of way. That's why I say it's really tropey, you know. Yeah. During the conversation, um, Gabrielle, the voice of the person that I don't think we've named yet, no, um, m- mentions that they work in a library. So now Fel calls, apparently every library, and asks for Gabrielle. <laughs> Oh, is is that what he was doing? I was really unclear. They didn't explicitly he, state it, but he, we did. Uh, yeah, we we find uh, Nafal like going through a phone book with a phone 
calling places. Hello, is Gabrielle there? Never mind. Goodbye. Hello, is Gabrielle there? Never mind. Goodbye. Yeah, but Until... he knows where she lives, so. Yeah, but he's looking he... to meet her outside of her apartment, apparently. So yeah, he eventually you. gets a hit with this random search method, goes down to the library where she works, confirms with a co-worker that Gabrielle works there, and then stalks her after she gets off of work. I mean, I, yeah. I, know, I know that's not what it's supposed to be, but that's the... No, but it is. Like, But, but, but it is, though. <laughs> but it is. Like, he has some hesitancy. Um, I believe that he really felt a connection. Like, you mm-hmm. believe in this movie that he felt this connection, because they talked for a while over the intercom. Like, yeah. one assumes they talk for hours. Like, even, like, a neighbor comes home, even though it's late at night. And, and there's a lot of stuff. So, like, he does feel a connection. Yeah. But he didn't feel the courage to, like, ask her then and there. They don't actually show the end of that scene. But, like, it feels like, you know, he didn't have the courage to ask her then and there. And now he wants to know more about her. But he doesn't have the courage to really contact her. So, so while he's following yeah. her. While he's at the library gathering up courage to say something, co-worker tells Nalfell that she's leaving for the day. But she's wearing something very neon. So he follows her outside through the metro to uh, a place where she goes. An yeah. abandoned part of town, it looks like, or less populated. Right. And, you know, you do get the impression that, like, he never really intended for it to be, like, this way. And, like, once he gets to that place, then he's cornered. <laughs> Yeah, um, Once he, it's still like a shitty decision to just like follow <laughs> a woman you really don't know. Like, but yeah, but, again, I think we can chalk that up to the no life experience. Um, not not yeah. even no life experience, but sub life experience to somebody of that age. Totally, I don't think there's any malicious intent, though. I do think that, like, in our modern day age, nobody would do that. Like, even a young man of like nineteen or twenty years old would know not to follow a woman, you know, like that. I, I really hope so, at least. Yeah, I, I think in a, in a rom-com you do something like that. Right. Or a romantic movie, yeah. Right. So, yeah. while he's there, um, he gets spotted by Gabrielle and Gabrielle's uncle Gigi, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they ask him, hey, who are you? What are you doing here? <laughs> um, Nafel looks around frantically, sees a notice on a bulletin board asking for a, a advertising an open job, and says, I'm here for the job. Apprenticeship. Uh, yes. He says, I'm here yeah. for the job. And the Gigi says, that's an apprenticeship. And that's been posted five years ago and it's not open anymore. <laughs> Ten years ago, actually. Yeah. Well, fine. Ten years ago. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, man. I, I no, didn't remember. It's interesting. Yeah. I didn't remember and I pulled a number out of my ass. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just saying it's very significant that it was 10 years ago. And I'm surprised that he believes him. He pulls it off the bulletin board right outside his place, you know, yeah, like the, just then and there <laughs> as they're watching. Yeah, like like they ask him, he literally goes, "Uh, looks left. Uh, looks right. Oh, and grabs it off the off the board." <laughs> and why did he grab it? Why did he not just like see it and then say, "Anyway, it it was a little silly. It was a little dramatic, but it worked." It, it's a it's it a worked. contrived along the in the same vein as a meat cute is contrived. Right, and that's why I keep saying this movie is very, like, tropey and archetypal. Yeah. But I kind of think it had to be that way for the, you know, the frame narrative of a hand finding its body to kind of ring true as a sweet emotional narrative rather than right. something creepy. 
I think we've mentioned it before, but I just want to reiterate that during this story and the hand story, it's uh, flipping back and forth uh, interchangeably right? As it, as it goes along. And again, it's like a trope. It's like the hand's reflection. I think. Yeah. Uh, the niece leaves, leaving Nalfell with the uncle. And Nalfell just decided at that point, yeah, yeah, I, I want this. I, um, she's going to be around here, I guess. I, I'm, I'm inferring their reasoning at this point. That it gives them a reason to be in her life somewhere. Yeah. And he tries to convince the, the uncle. Turns out he's a woodworker. And he asks a lot of questions like, why do you want to be a, a, a woodworker and stuff like that? And he has a hard time answering. Yeah. Um, Gigi asks a couple more questions about his background, finds out that he's kind of just a lost kid and ends up uh, agreeing to take him on. Yeah. Cause what he initially says is like, I, I put that out of 10 years ago. Like I'm not looking for an apprentice, but mm-hmm. it actually happens really quickly. Like it's a very, like kind of like Mr. Miyagi kind of narrative, but like that happens, like he opens up to him within one scene. As soon as he, says like oh yeah my parents are dead then the next scene is like oh you're my apprentice kind of thing like it, it happens yeah. all very rapidly but you can infer the emotions behind it that he has it, empathy for yeah him. you can infer that anybody who's been around for for a minute knows that Nalfell is just a kid who doesn't know what they're doing and has no support or path in life yeah and so uh, along along with the job comes an apartment that Nalfell can stay in so at that point Nalfell right. moves out from his uncle's place yeah, which, like we mentioned before, he tells his uncle his uncle doesn't say anything. He even says, mm-hmm. thanks for putting me up for all these years, and his uncle doesn't say anything. So it yeah. seem like, you know, it's, it's, you get that, it's a tiny window. Like, you kind of have to put the pieces together yourself. Because, like, I think with more information, it could be a heartbreaking scene. But you've really only had a, a couple seconds of those interactions. When you start to put the pieces together yourself, you're like, wow. How rough is that that he's never been acknowledged? There's a lot of like little moments in the movie and like transitions where they don't tell you what's going on. They just let you see it. And I think your mind fills in a, a lot of the emotional story yeah. in the middle. I totally think you could interpret that scene in multiple different ways, depending on where you're at, you know? Yeah. Um, so Nalfell becomes Gigi's woodworking apprentice and at the same time still takes some moments to go to the library to talk with Gabrielle. And during these encounters and during the first one, there's a theme on um, uh, exploring the North Pole, I think it was. Yeah. And talks about igloos and the expansive snowscape and polar bears and stuff like that. It's like their first real bonding moment. He checks out a book on that, and you know he talks about how like, do you not like bears? And she's like, everybody likes bears. <laughs> That's a stupid question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then he shows her how if you cup one hand over one ear and one hand over the other alternatingly, it feels like you're walking through snow. Hmm. Yeah. So we also find out that as a side project, uh, Nalfell is making. A making an igloo out of wood on top of a, yeah. a banded building. I, I kind of like this. It felt like it was fast tracking you know, the narrative because in the way it's like fast tracking 
where he's gotten to with the relationship, but also where he's gotten to with woodworking since he had no experience before. That's a complicated project. <laughs> yeah. But, like, you get the impression that now he's been at this for a while, basically. Because mm-hmm. he wouldn't have been able to do it when he first started. You would think, yeah. I mean, so, I think so. You know? Yeah. I think it's a way to describe the fact that it's later in their relationship than, like, you would think it was if you didn't have that piece. I don't know. I mean, it, it does feel like maybe it's a little forced in that way. But... Yeah, it's a it's a vague concept of time, really. Yes. So at one point, uh, Nalfell's cousin visits, invites um, both Nalfell and Gabrielle to a party. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought he was going to try to avoid that at all costs, but he says, like, uh, Gabrielle's like, like, uh, do you want to go? We don't have to. He's like, Nafel's like, yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's go. Uh, come pick me up tonight at eight. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of cute because it's like he's he's really not into what his cousin's doing because he's worried he's going to take his girl, basically, it seems mm-hmm. like. Um, but, you know, she asks him if, if he wants to go and then says, if we don't want to go, we don't have to. So it's like this this thing where, like, as soon as she says, like, oh, can we go together? He's into it. Right. So, uh, Gabrielle comes by to pick up Nalfell, and instead, Nalfell takes her to the top of the building to show them the igloo. Is that what happens? Because I was a little confused about that. Like, Yeah, because th- that scene ends with, like, yeah, um, let's let's go to the party, pick me up at 8, and then it goes to nighttime yeah. with the scooter pulling in. But he does go to the party. Oh, okay. he goes to the party later. After this. I, yeah. There was like some time skipping. So it was a little confusing sometimes with the time skipping. So, but I, I think yeah, you're right. Gabrielle comes to pick up Nafel for the party. And instead, Nafel takes her to the rooftop to show off the wooden igloo. Mm-hmm. And during that exchange, uh, Nafel reveals that he was that pizza delivery person. Yeah, because she didn't know. And. And you know she doesn't take it very well. I don't. I don't think I would either. No, it's not a. Because Nafel just tells her, "I was that pizza delivery person, and I followed you, pretty much." Mm-hmm. And she's like, "What? What the? What the heck is this? Do you just want to fuck a girl in, in the igloo? What's going on?" But this is where it's kind of like your traditional, like romantic comedy kind of narrative. Where it's like, wow, you done fucked up, but eventually we're going to get together kind of thing. But it's it's weird because it's like, no, that is super weird. And the fact that he presented it as if it was normal. is Or as if it was like um, kitschy or like a, a neat fate thing or something. Yeah, it was weird. And this is the only part of the story where I wish I like, I know I had a little more from that. I was like. What is? I mean, I'm glad he told her. You know, it didn't play out like a rom com where it's like, oh, when it when I tell her, she's gonna be so mad, so I can't ever tell her, and blah blah blah. It was like he just told her, but so Gabrielle is um not happy and ends up leaving. Nalfell ends up going to their cousin's party, uh, getting drunk and getting into a fight. And this is the point where I was like, you know, I talked a lot about, um, there's another part we didn't talk about 
in the hands narrative is the hand actually gets to like hold hands with a baby. It accidentally right. kind of like goes into an apartment and observes the baby taking a bath while the mom is on the phone, like is still in the room, but on the phone, you know, like she's not neglecting her baby in the bath. But it, you know, the baby is delighted to see the hand, and then later <laughs> on, the hand gets to like creep up and like the baby holds the finger, you know, and it's the sweetest thing when a baby holds your finger because their hand is so small that all it can do is hold your finger. And, you know, it's that amazing feeling of what hands mean. You know, having that small hand hold your finger like that is such an incredible feeling. Mm -hmm. um, but during, you know, that mirror narrative, then we get the way that hands can hurt. Uh, basically, Nofil's fight is literally just like he's on edge because of everything that's happened the squirrel rejecting him and some guy just spits in his drink i mean the guy was a jerk but no like jumps on him and yeah it's like now stands up him. stands up for a second to get a get some more alcohol and some he takes his stool while he's standing up he's like and the the guy was like now like just go sit over there instead and I was like, hey, that's my cup. And he's like, oh, this is your cup. And it goes to spit in it because yeah. he's, he's an asshole. And yeah. Nafal just goes uh, zero to 11 on his face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, yeah, he was polite at first. He was like, excuse me, that's my seat. That's my cup. And the guy tried to spit in his cup as a result. But, yeah, then he reacts violently. And, and I think you can tell it's because he's dealing with a lot of emotions you know, related to earlier that night. Yeah, he's just doing what stupid people thing where it's like I'm sad so I'm going to actively drink as much as possible yeah yeah, it was like really wasted and I also think you get the impression that's not normal for him like he doesn't know how to hold his liquor I don't know why I get that impression like we don't get <laughs> that much of this character in this story you know no it's just like but like I, I said before I believe like he's generally just like your average guy I guess a lot of it I think you're supposed to fill in the gaps mm-hmm yeah but realistically, like, him jumping on that guy, I think it was mostly to demonstrate the way that hands can hurt. Because so far they've been used for love and care. And uh, creativity. Um, and creativity, yeah. Uh, what I wrote a note about it, too, is that how um, his playing the piano expressed his love for his mom. Right. You know, and he actually, uh, his whole thing was he would, as a kid, he would record things. He had, like, a little microphone tape that thing. Like, I used to have one of those as a kid. You know, you record the ambient noises on a tape. He recorded his mom playing, his mom talking to him. And then he learned how to play the piano from her. So that was love for her. And then he started woodworking, you know, very hand-oriented thing. Is his love for Giselle. What's her name? Giselle? The new girl? Uh, that girl he loves? Is it? Gabrielle. Gabrielle, sorry. Uh... Gabrielle started woodworking because he loved her. And the first time they really bonded was because he got splinters from woodworking and she bandaged his wound. Oh, that's right. In his hand. Yeah, so like hands are a central focus of this thing, what hands can do. So as we build through the narrative, then we get this anger um, and this hurt and this rejection, how hands can hurt. And that doesn't come until much later in the story. Right. Um, after that, that's pretty much where Naufel's narrative meets up with the hands narrative, because the next morning, uh, Naufel wakes up with a black eye, 
goes to work uh, cutting some some blocks apart on a I'm not sure the exact kind of tool, but a, a vertical automated saw, and goes to swat. Yeah, and goes to swat at a fly, and while that happens, the watch they're wearing on the wrist gets caught in the saw, and their hand gets cut off. Yeah, and that's oh, we'll return to the beginning of the narrative where the first thing we saw was him yeah. trying to catch a fly. But he was so distracted by catching, and the, actually, the fly returns multiple times throughout the narrative, just images of the fly. So yeah. I, I, the whole time I was watching, I was questioning, "What does the fly mean?" And, and really, I think it was just a way to return the narrative to the beginning. It was just a threat. It's like I'm going to catch this fly, and the truth is, he did. He caught the fly. Yeah. I mean, the fly ends up uh, making its way out of the severed hand, but still caught the fly. He caught the fly, but yeah, he also lost his hand. So Then we're talking about fate again, and we're talking about, I don't know, what hands mean. And after that, the hands narrative and Nafil's narrative meets up, and we're in the uh, present tense of the movie, I guess. Yeah. So then he... Can you describe what happens? Well, I mean, the narrative kind of breaks form at this point because it goes a little bit more into Gabrielle's perspective um, where she... Uh, well, actually, no, it's not quite that then, huh? We, we had talked about this part a little bit, but the hand returns home and sees him lying there with his bandage. Um, and another thing that happens is I think it's Gigi who comes knocking on his door, trying to ask him if he needs anything. He's sitting there, you know, with his wrist bandaged. He says he needs to sign some medical forms. Yeah. Um, he says, all I have to do is sign. I've taken care of everything. And there's an expression of care that I really love in that relationship, that there's finally care for him. Yeah. But he's rejecting it because, he, you know, this is the point where it really, I think, drives it home. You know, losing a hand is very significant. And like I said, I've known people who've lost their foot or their leg, and it's, it impacts you significantly. And I still think losing a hand means even more, because hands are an expression of love, which I think is what this movie is trying to say. Mm-hmm. Or expressions of anger, too. They're, they're, express, they're expressive tools. They're exploratory tools. Hands are very significant to a human. I think that's what this movie is trying to reach to. So he's very depressed, so he's shutting out even someone who cares about him. The hand tries to reunite with the body. It doesn't succeed. And also the tape is there, the tape that was present early on. The tape that actually, you know, if you think about his parents' death, he was reaching that hand out the window to record the noises as they drove along the road. Yeah. And he was reaching it towards his folks to record what they said as he talked about going to a concert where his mom would play. At this point and, in the mo- movie, we get a flashback, uh, our first flashback of the moment of Nafel's parents' death. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the first. Wasn't there one earlier? Where... There were some things before we saw like an upturned car and like a goat, but they didn't ex- yeah. show or explain it. But they did. Like Earlier on, they still had the same image of him in the car recording his parents and talking to them and his dad being distracted before the car. They, they they didn't really connect it, but they, they had the images. They didn't go through the whole sequence to sh- show you what happened. Right. This was more of an elaboration, but it was still a lot of the same scenes. 
Yeah. So the first time we see it, it's him recording his parents talking. His dad looks back, and then the car crashes. Like like the first first few times we see it, we see it as brief clips of like him sitting in the car, the parents in the car talking, and then the car turned over. But we also see his dad look back at him as he's recording his dad's voice before the car crashes. So that's what I was worrying about from the beginning of the movie, that it was about him blaming himself for his parents' death. But as we get towards the end of the movie, I feel like that's not really what it's about. So hmm. We get a little bit more. We get a little bit more of their conversation. But we still get the fact that he broke the same arm that he was reaching out. And actually, we get that instead of reaching towards his parents in the moment of the car crash, he was actually reaching out the window. So that gave me a lot more reassurance, you know, like, I didn't want it to be a movie about how, like, he blamed himself for that. You know? Right, yeah. So it was, like, right before the crash that he reached towards his parents, and then he reached out. But we yeah. didn't know that before, you know, we got it separately. At one of these points, we're going to watch a cartoon series or movie where both the parents are alive <laughs> and happy mm-hmm. and everybody's fine. We just watched Bluey. I guess that's true. We watched Bluey. We also have to. Yeah, yeah. That that means we also have to steer away from any Disney movie. I think. Yeah, man, I know. I mean, it is it is that tropey thing of the parents dying, both parents dying. Like, it's weird because you almost feel like a movie in which both parents die should be all about that. But this was a nice way to make it well rounded. It was about grief and loss for multiple. So then after that part where Gigi tries to get uh, Nalfella to sign the medical forms, we go to Gabrielle's point of view, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, cool scene. It starts to snow. I mean, we don't realize that this started to snow yet. The scene was actually really interesting. Oh, wait. It was Gabrielle goes to Nalfella's room, opens it up, and finds yeah. that Nalfella has completely moved out. Uh, everything's empty. The sheets are folded up on the bed. Uh, they lie there for a while reading a book that Gabrielle had let Nalfell that Nalfell left. And then they go to the roof, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And discover the uh, tape machine with some. With the. Uh, that, that was the tape that recorded the audio during the accident before, had been re recorded over at, at a point. And then, that was the, it's the igloo scene. It's when it has been snowing and we see her walking in yeah, the snow. In the snow. I thought at first that scene might have been just like a surreal thing, you know, because of the images of walking alone in the snow we'd had before. Right. She's walking towards the igloo and the igloo is covered in snow. It's still the wooden igloo, though. As soon as we get close up, we realize that she mm-hmm. goes in the igloo and the tape recorder's there and she starts to listen. Uh, as Gabrielle listens to the tape recorder, we hear a bunch of uh, ambient sounds, and it cuts to the past when Nalfell was recording it, using the recorded tape sounds as a soundtrack for that moment. And can you describe what happens here? Because I tried to describe it to somebody earlier, and they and I realized I, I'm not sure I got it. Well, I mean, she's there's two simultaneous narratives at this point. Well, actually, there's three. Because what's happening is also the hand is kind of acting as an observer at this point. Oh yeah, the and, the, the hand made a 
um, igloo out of sugar cubes at one point, which led. Oh yes. Which made in his apartment. Which made uh, not Giselle, Gabrielle go to the wooden I- igloo in, in the first place. Sorry, I poisoned your mind with her name. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Not... No, her name is Gabrielle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the hand made the igloo out of sugar cubes, which, I mean, if we're going to talk about that. It's very impressive. Second, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing because it means the hand is still connected to the body. I mean, in every possible way. But, of course, the hand is knowing where the body's, body is and making its way there, so it is connected. Mm-hmm. And this brings up themes of genetic memory, but also I think the hand is still active symbolically as an, an actor for agency and also a symbol of loss which we'll get to mm-hmm. so the hand is acting kind of as a third party observer sitting you know up at the dock where they're at on the igloo's been built etc and there's a crane and, and i don't think we talked about this before that there was a point where they talked about fate um he and uh, gabrielle and you know uh now i forget his name <laughs> now fell no, Phil and Gabrielle talked about fate, and he, he asked her if she believed in fate, and then he said, you know, I believe in fate, but I believe that the only way to, like, def- defeat fate, I guess, is, I don't know if that's how he expressed it, but it was more like, you know, if you want to get off fate's track, the only thing you can do is you can go something as if you are playing basketball. You pivot, you go around, you do the opposite of what someone expects, and then, because they're sitting right there on that dock, you leap over to that crane. Oh. And, you know, it's a crane that's directly, like, off the dock. It's a big leap. Like, it seems impossible. As like, so uh, that's the way he describes defeating fate, is doing something totally unexpected and seemingly impossible. Okay, okay. Now, now, now I understand. So, so what happens, yeah. Yeah. So what happens is, we're listening through the tape. Uh, we see Nalfell set up a plank as a ramp and this entire time i, I honestly thought nafil was just going to walk off the, the side, side of the building no i mean i had many moments of that mm-hmm. um it was definitely mirroring this narrative of how to defeat fate but i really thought you know he lost his hand like, so I young too was gonna yeah kill himself like i really did and the hand is an observer but um what's happening is the parallel narrative is such that we're seeing something that happened basically in the recent past while hearing Gabrielle hear the noises being recorded in the current, yeah, in the present. Something that happened like last night as Gabrielle listens that morning. Right. And so we're getting that dispersed, <laughs> and sound is such an important part in this movie. So yeah, please tell us. So then uh, Nafel sets up a ramp and takes a running leap and like jumps towards the crane. And the way... Uh, the way the shot is set up, you're you're looking at it and like, oh, n- there's like he just jump off. That's it. There's no way you can make it. And now Fel ends up safely landing on the crane, on the platform yeah. of the crane. I mean, but with so much momentum that he runs to the very edge of the railing and almost tips over the railing, <laughs> but he catches himself. You know, right. he's okay. And you get to flash back and forth and see her wondering what's happening, and then her visible. Like understanding of the sound and relief, she hears the she hears the leap. She yeah. hears the footsteps on the metal and is relieved. She hears them running. She hears the crash into the railing and she's relieved. Like well, it's th- such then, a powerful scene. After that, Nafel lands and gives a shout of joy, and she, she hears that. Yes, yes. 
I that, thought that was the best scene in the movie. <laughs> like the way they framed that, because also in music and sound has been really important. Like not only his allusion to putting your hands over your ears in the snow, the first time he pursues her, um, the other librarian says something like, oh, you, you'll notice those neon things she has in her ears and their headphones. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain point where we get to hear the sound, the song she's hearing. It's this like very ambient, beautiful song. And we get to hear his relationship with music from early on, like playing the piano and also hearing his mother play the cello and play the piano as well. And wanting to go to a concert is he wants when he's in the car before the crash, he is talking about wanting to see his mother's concert. And uh, also, and while he's in Paris, we get his relationship with music also with him and his cousin li- listening to uh, French hip hop. Yeah, there's a really good like. I wanted to say this is an ambient soundtrack, like, but there's incredible, like, hip-hop that's also, like, sort of ambient, too. Like, mm-hmm. we've got this incredible, like, I just want to call it ambient, like, an ambient <laughs> soundtrack. Everything kind of holds noise in a beautiful way. I think, since it's in France, it has to be ambient, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a pass for that for now. Ambient? Is that how you say that? <laughs> sure. Uh, the okay, last cool, couple of shots we have of the movie is Nalfal at night uh, laying down on the crane platform and smiling and Gabrielle standing Gab- Gabrielle standing on the uh, roof in the morning both kind of smiling and then credits. No, but not just that. The hand. Oh, we, we see the hand observing Gabrielle. No, it retreats. Yeah, it it's retreats back. It's walking backwards through the snow. It's going away. <laughs> it's ready to go. It's gone. Then like, credits. Yeah. It's a very French ending. <laughs> but it's actually the happiest French ending I've ever seen. I really wanted the hand and the human to reunite. But, you know, you want that, of course. Cause you want the best possible happy ending. But yeah, for a French I- movie, you don't expect a happy ending. This is the happiest French ending I could have imagined. I was des- describing the ending, and they asked, so it's a sad movie? Like, n- no. Like, but the yeah. hand, hand doesn't get that together. Well, no, but, uh, um, uh, um, uh. <laughs> you know, if you've lost your hand, you're not going to get your hand back. Right. And it's real. Um, I think the sad part is that they made the hand a character who wanted to be reunited. But, at the very end of the movie, you know, my interpretation is with the hand retreating like that, it's like, you don't wonder what the hand's future is, because it is a hand. Even though it's been made to be a character in many ways, it's true that the whole thing is a narrative about the main character. And the hand retreating is saying, like, yeah, this is this is a loss. This is emotional significant. This is this is grief. Because the whole movie's treated grief with the loss of his parents and everything. So if you'll um, allow me, I'm going to quote from an article from Deadline.com. Yeah. This is um, an article from December 23rd, 2019. I Lost My Body, scribe Guillaume Laurent discusses his profound introduction into the world of animation. Um, if you're interested, I suggest giving the whole thing a read, but I'll lim- limit myself to reading off two par- paragraphs here. While I Lost My Body was de- was devised as an open-ended fable, what Laurent hoped to craft in the end 
was a story about the quest for oneself, a meditation on lost childhood, the parts missing from all of us and how we go about living our lives in their absence. Quote, what we need to do is somehow overcome, overcome the grief of not having this part, so that through grief, we can eventually get to be ourselves in spite of this missing part. In a way, this applies to childhood. And if we go back to other scripts I've written, they often go back to this feeling of childhood. I feel it's all connected, the screenwriter reflects. I feel that over time, childhood is something that needs to be separated from us. But somehow, childhood is something that is still within all of us. We long for it, and we need to find a way to overcome it, realizing that it is no longer with us, he adds. Just like people who've had a limb cut off often feel that they can still move their fingers, all of us can still feel that childhood is with us, and we need to somehow overcome this longing. So that was from Laurent, the uh, writer of the, of the original book and screenwriter for this movie. That's fascinating. You know, to say we somehow need to overcome this longing, I don't know if I agree with that. Do you? <laughs> I'm not sure I agree philosophically. That's definitely what the movie was trying to say. Interesting. Which is probably a better ex- explanation for the waving uh, astronaut. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's there. It's just, you know, I don't necessarily think that we can ever overcome those sorts of losses. Like, even the loss of childhood. And I don't necessarily think that's bad. No. I, I feel like I have a different view than most people and definitely mental health professionals I've talked to before. <laughs> yeah. They talked to me before about how, um, what was the phrase? Like forgiveness is letting go of a possible pass or something mm-hmm. about th- shitty things that have happened in the past before. But I was like, no, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to forgive that or lo- mourn for a possible future, but I'm just not going to forgive somebody for doing something shitty. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. I think in terms of forgiveness, I, I think forgiveness is way more to do with you than it has to do with anybody else. Yeah. But it has to do with, like, if you want to hold on to the past, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you choose to hold on, like, I think you should choose to hold on to some the things that are positive. And holding on, you know, to, to childhood to me is holding on to things that are important, you know? Well, I, yeah, I was talking in context where I had things where I'm not holding on to them, but I don't forgive them. Sure. I mean, I don't think there's any necessity forgive to forgive people for things um, yeah. other than, you know, I think a lot of times forgiveness is conflated with, um, I think maybe sort of importantly conflated with letting yourself be yourself without holding on to things from the past. Like, sometimes forgiveness is just, like, not about letting the other person get away with it. You know, it's just about not caring anymore about that. (laughs) Like, I was at the point where I didn't care, but I wasn't willing to forgive them, and they wanted, like, complete, like, Buddhist forgiveness. I was like, no, that's not... That's not this. <laughs> well, the thing is, forgiveness is not about what anybody else wants. It can't be. Forgiveness is only about you. It has to be. Like, I, to me, forgiveness is literally, like, I'm letting this go because it's not good for me. Right. 
Like, if you forgive someone because they want it, that's forgiveness <laughs> in no. my mind. So in anyway. <laughs> in this same article, um, Laurent talks about how, because uh, they're, they're, they're a longtime screenwriter for live action stuff, how this is the first time they worked with um, animation, and it opened up their mind to the possibilities that animation can bring. That it doesn't, it's not as re restrictive as live action stuff can be. Yeah. I had some interesting thoughts on this. Are, are you ready for my thoughts? Do you want to say something? Please, go on. Yeah. So, the animation technique on this is very unique. Um, it is a 3D model mm. done in Blender with the grease pencil tool in Blender performing, you know, 2D animation over the 3D models wow. and mirroring that. It's super unique. Like, no one's ever done anything like this, as far as I know. Uh, you just it, blew, blew my freaking mind, man. <laughs> I know. When I first saw this, I thought it might be vector, but it's too neat to be vector. It's too pure. And it's too 2D. So I had to know what the technique was. It's amazing. So, like, let me say that again. It's a 3D model. They created a 3D model. Um, the reason they did that is because they felt they could get camera angles that you couldn't get in 2D. Now, my perspective is, I'm not sure if that's true. I think I've seen a lot of beautiful 2D animation that can mirror amazing images. It's just 2D is different than 3D. But I understand that it might have been easier to get the angles they wanted to get. You know what I mean? Using 3D. But then they went back over each frame with the grease pencil tool in Blender so they really did create a 2D animation based on a 3D model, and then they blended those layers together. <laughs> and that's why it looks so unique. It looks like vector, vector animation, but it's really not. It, it looks better than vector animation. It, it looks beautiful. It seems like kind of the opposite of what, what they did for Klaus, I think. <laughs> yeah. I know, yeah. That's interesting, though, because it really does give off a look of like a uh, sketchy 2D animation. Yeah, but I mean, it's pretty obvious the 3D models are under there, but like not in an obtrusive way, you know? Yeah. And I get what they were going for. I'm not actually entirely sure why they chose not to go fully 2D. Um, sometimes to me, I'm worried it might have just been a little bit of a shortcut, but at the same time, they were trying to move a hand as if it was a singular entity through a lot of this. So I think this was probably the best mode they could have chose. I did feel like watching some of the hand scenes, I saw some like, not unreal, but like video game, like physics movements happening. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a 3d modeling at work and I'm not going to be like that. You know, I am, <laughs> I'm a traditional person when it comes to animation, right? Not to anything else, but, when it comes to animation and art, I, and I'm not saying that I prefer that, but I'm saying I'm really locked in. Like <laughs> I've always used traditional media and learning to use digital as anybody's seen from my illustrations for retro fanfic, learning to use a digital medium has been a challenge. Yeah. So in understanding this, I do get where they're coming from. I'm just not so sure that they couldn't have achieved what they wanted just in 2d animation. However, I do think this is a very unique style of animation, and I loved it all the way through. I I thought it was pretty interesting. 
like to say like I'm gonna use a 3D model and then layer every still with the grease pencil and blender doing a 2D image like because actually if you look up the articles you can see the differences between you know every component of each frame when you see them all together it looks super cool like they did they did a good job well that's kind of what animation is about isn't it kind of like innovating the uh, physical art form right yeah totally and the only thing i disagree with is that they couldn't have gotten the camera angles they wanted with 2d because i think if you work hard enough you can i just think this would have been easier <laughs> in a way but it was also pre- not saying it's easy because it presented its own challenges and yeah i applaud them for doing something so unique and presenting its own challenges in that way it is a bit odd because like i you know, grew up on 2D animation, and I, I love that. And I, I, I had a hard time, kind of coming to, like, coping with coming to terms with 3D animation becoming like the mainstay. Totally, yeah, I hear you. But I, I feel like when it comes down to it, you have to respect the the art form, right? Like, yeah, it is still art, even if it is done differently. Whether you do it with a with a pencil, with a you know, charcoal with paints or with a computer, it's still art, right? Totally. It is. I mean, you know, there's so many variations of what art is. Like, sculpture is art, and 3D modeling is art, and, you know, uh, fashion design is art, and um, growing, you know, your own unique, like, garden is art. Like, it's so many things that are, art is everything. You, you really have to accept that. It was interesting that they went through this effort because, like, it didn't doesn't come off as a 3D animation. It comes off as a 2D animation. I, I didn't even notice the difference, really. Really? Oh, no, that's what I missed first off. That's why I had to ask the internet, is this vector? Um, but it's fascinating because, I mean, you're, like... It's true. It doesn't show up like it does in vector animation. You know, like, yeah. it doesn't point out, like, it doesn't point out, like, you know, in um, the Dragon Prince or anything. Like, things are not as obvious. And I think they've really gotten to a new level of synthesis between 3D modeling and 2D skins. Because what they, what I believe they did, I haven't gotten the full picture from the articles I read, but it's like, we use 3D models and then we use the grease pencil over. It made me think, you know, they really did it like a 2D animation. They just used 3D models as their base. They just created models and, and reference. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a great idea. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's basically like you're going from 2D to 3D to 2D because any 3D model starts with a 2D drawing, right? Mm-hmm. You draw your character out and, and every angle and you create a model and then you go back and you relayer another 2D thing over that. I love the idea of that process because I do think it streamlines the animation process, even if it might be a little tricky. I think I've done something like that before accidentally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds fun, though, doesn't it? Like, uh, I remember for the um, retro fanfic picture where I tried to draw and got frustrated and ended up taking a picture and tracing over it myself so mm-hmm. like i think given the option I, I might try to do something like this <laughs> yeah totally i mean 
you know, like I said, the reality is it's a just a different technique. And it, being able to experiment with those new techniques and a new media, like they use Blender for the whole thing, open source. Wow. Like that's super cool, you know? Um, being able to create those experiments is, is part of the new world of drawing and animation. And I'm kind of excited to be part of it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm kind of glad I didn't pass this one by. It's been sitting on my uh, Netflix to watch list like for five ever. That's one more than four. And I hadn't pushed myself to, to watch it in, until now. No, I, I'm glad we were pushed to watch this because like I said a couple times before, I was put off by the opening, but the whole story ended up being really beautiful. Yes. Now we know the uh, dark purpose behind this project, which is to clear out my Netflix queue. There we go. <laughs> Do you have any, any other thoughts you'd like to impart? I I really honestly think we covered everything. Um, I do like that the fly showing up consistently, like every like every ten minutes or so, we get an image of the fly. Every time made period, it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, made it like seem so much more poignant at the end when it was the the catching the fly was the source of the hand's downfall and knowing that the fly was caught, which seems like an achievement, but having to have him lose his hand and then at the end knowing the permanency of the hand being lost. I, I felt like that was a really powerful kind of fate deciding image throughout. Like you think you want something and then it ends in this downfall, but this downfall might be uplifting in the end. I, I thought that was a really good thread. That's something that Nafal had been trying to do since childhood. Right. And accomplished and when he it. Did, he lost his hand. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, when you accomplished it, you got not success, but a sense of loss instead. Right. But at the same time, what we get is the hand can never reconnect with the body image at the end, but maybe Gabrielle can connect with Nafal, which has been his goal in, in young adult. So hmm. I like the complicated emotional themes of this for sure. So, who do you think you'd recommend this movie to? Like, what kind of person? Oh, man, I think people who like French New Wave or, like, French film in general mm -hmm. would like this movie. And I think people who are interested in new animation techniques, um, for sure. This is a fascinating animation technique, and it's really done very well. Great showcase, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I honestly feel like this is a really well-done film. Um, despite the tropiness sometimes, like, I think it's done for purpose. I, I almost can't imagine a person I wouldn't recommend this film to, really. <laughs> That's a glowing recommendation. Yeah. I mean, I really liked it. It's not perfect, but I liked it. C'est la vie. <laughs> C'est la vie. An early line of the movie, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Just as a personal note, it was fun to listen to something in French again. I've been doing a... Yeah. Spanish and then Portuguese recently. It was nice to come back to French. It felt, felt warm. <laughs> it felt nice. I thought about you. I was like, Tom's <laughs> going to know what this movie means in French. <laughs> Who would you recommend this movie to? Well, I have the kind of opposite thing where I'm not sure who I would recommend it to because it's like hmm. a lot of people I know like movies where, for lack of a better description, things happen, you know? You don't think things happen in this? 
not not in like a American movie way. No. Like, but like there's a lot of action, right? <laughs> and drama. I'm I'm not disagreeing. No. <laughs> yeah. It's not a something that like, holds your attention. Like there's no sense of like a winning an accomplishment and feel goodness, I think. So you mean the ending, basically. It's part of it. It's a French ending. <laughs> but knowing this was a French film when I came into it, I did not expect a happy ending. Actually, this is one of the happiest endings for a French film I've ever seen. So Yeah. But like I said, I was describing the ending to somebody and they're like, so it's a sad movie. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's happy for a French movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a French movie. We keep on waving that around. Sorry. That's just a joke I'm making. <laughs> yeah. I agree it's not a sad ending. It's just, it's a real ending. And that's why I like it. It's also a nice little, um, because I've dipped my toe a little bit into French animation uh, a year ago when I was studying the language for fun. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the modern stuff is like um, growth of the children's cartoon genre. It was interesting to go back into like the, uh, like, like you said, like the French New Wave type of adult style movie yeah. with, with French animation. Yeah. This is not Wakfu at all, no. <laughs> no. I mean, this is this is a movie for movie lovers, I think. And people who understand, and even literature lovers, like people who understand the tropes behind it. Yeah. And can parse the communication. And I don't even think it's it's very deep, but it is very emotional. Yeah, I, I'd recommend this movie to people who want um, evocative movies, movies that make you think and feel. You know, it's not again. It's not like the deepest of the deep. It's it's just real. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So, uh, so we like this one. I think I like this one. I think I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> like there's parts of me that's like I kind of want more out of it, but man, it was innovative in animation. So it was cool. Yeah, I don't think I would have if I had a hand into this. I w I don't think I would have made more in the movie. It, it said what it was yeah. wanting to. It's almost just got like kind of like a Disney movie level of there. You know, it's like just mm -hmm. enough for yeah. the emotions, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I love Disney. That's not not. It's good. <laughs> so uh, thank you for joining us for this discussion. And whatever you say at the end of a podcast. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Whatever you say at the end of a podcast. I've been dumb. I could have been Tori. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye. It's got to be a better way is to that... end things. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, is that a good ending? I'd... Not at all. I'm not sure. No, it's terrible. <laughs> okay. Well, it's no, it's no lying, down, uh... loud, lying down in the snow after having to fight fate ending, but you know. <laughs> Yeah. We, we well, take, take what, what we can get. <laughs> I'm just a hand backing my way through the snow. <laughs> I gotta say, that was the saddest part. I was like, I wanted the hand to come home, but realistically, <laughs> that's that's not real, right? So. Yeah, it yeah. led me to the unnecessary question of whether the hand's narrative was real or not. But like, it, that doesn't matter at all. So I 
quickly abandoned that thought. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, there was a part of me that like wasn't as I was watching the film, not even thinking about how it could end. Like, yeah. I wanted the hand to be reunited, and I knew in myself why I wanted that is I wanted a happy ending, and I wanted the hand back. But I also kind of knew it was a film about loss. So when the hand like did back away, I was like, "Oh man, that's sad." But like, I I realized for the first time that I would have been disappointed if it went either way. You know, like sometimes it's, it wouldn't it wouldn't have been real if it went either way. So. Okay, I'm gonna stop. They, they would have had to work. <laughs> I'm gonna stop recording. Oh yeah, let's do that. Thanks so much for listening. We should be back in two weeks with more discussion of an old fan fiction. We're just three Earth life forms, two of whom were physically present, and one of whom lost his body. Until next time, goodbye.